Welcome to this week's episode of the Mixtape with Scott. I am your host, Scott Cunningham, professor of economics at Baylor University. And this week I am excited to have someone, I'm always excited to have people on the show. This week I'm uh, uh, excited times 1.5. So this is a good friend of mine. Uh, You've heard of him. Probably some of you have heard of him, Andrew Goodman Bacon at the Federal Reserve. Andrew, uh, for those of you who know him, he's an economic historian. He's also the also the author of a paper that was published in the Journal of Econometrics a couple of years ago that sort of has been one of several uh, articles written on the problems with a traditional way of estimating uh, programs and laws using the two-way fixed effects estimator when you're doing difference and differences. And um, paper has been highly impactful, highly influential. Uh, and uh, it's my pleasure to have him on the show. He's a good friend of mine and um, I've come to love him very much. I think anybody that knows him loves him very much. And this was a wonderful um, interview. So uh, I'm not going to really say much more than that. Just wanted to say thank you again for tuning into the show. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for uh, sharing. I encourage you to uh, share this with your friends, um, share this with uh, your family. You're going to hear the story of someone that probably didn't really like economics at the beginning and uh, came around to the dark side. So I hope that you guys enjoy it. Have a great week. Okay, well, it is uh, such a delight to have on the podcast uh, someone who has become a really good friend that I care a lot about. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself to the um, audience? Tell us your name, your title, and who pays your your paycheck. Great. Uh, I am Andrew Goodman Bacon, and um, if I meet you in person, you can call me Bacon if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, and I, um, I'm a senior economist at the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute at the Minneapolis Fed, who pays my paycheck. Um, uh, but I guess I get some teeny little side paycheck for teaching uh, seven weeks of econometrics at the University of Minnesota. Oh, okay, cool, cool. All right, well, great. Now, this is Andrew Goodman-Bacon. A lot of people listening actually know exactly who you are, and they're so excited to tune in, and I'm so excited to talk to you. Before we get started, um, could you tell me, what is, as an icebreaker, what's one of your favorite vacations you had as a kid that uh, to this day you still kind of think about every now and then? Yeah, I think, okay, so I think a lot about just like a style of vacation that we used to take. So I grew up, uh, not all the time, but for kindergarten to eighth grade, we lived outside of Seattle. Wow. My parents are both from Michigan. Mm. So a lot of vacations were like, go to Michigan and do chores for my grandma. Which was, uh, you know, that was fun. Like my my mom's mom is from the central UP um, and she lived in a house right on beautiful inland lake and she had a sauna there. And so, you know, there were chores to do, but yeah. um, it's a beautiful, fun place to go. So it was just kind of a lot of like family time up there um, and then just like pitching in and helping out with stuff that she needed. You're the first person who, when I ask, uh, tell me about your favorite vacation, you tell me you were doing chores. <laughs> We did a lot of we did a lot of chores. Vacation yeah, chores. What, what kind of chores are you doing for your grandma? Uh, oh. She lived on the water. Is that what you said? She lived on the water. Yeah, she lived on like if there's like an inland lake. Uh, she lives. It's like sort of right in the central UP. Um, 
so it was, you know, like there's maintenance stuff around a house. Um, I remember once my mom and I installed like a electric fence, like for dogs, because everybody on the side of the family had dogs and they wanted to bring their dogs up there and, and they were all like trained on the little electric fence. And so she and I had to dig like a, get a machine, rent a machine and dig this like thin little trench to put the wire underground. And we got stung by bees and oh, gosh. Uh, it was, but you know, it was a memory. Yeah. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So you were, you grew up really close with your family. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Uh, well, so let, let's get started. So you grew up in Seattle. Yeah. So I was born in Minneapolis actually. Um, oh. I think, I think maybe from where I'm sitting in my office next to the Mississippi river, I can see the hospital where I was born oh, right now. Wow. Yeah. Um, but we lived here only for a little while. Uh, and then we moved, um, outside of Philadelphia for a year or so. I lived outside of Ann Arbor actually when I was about in preschool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved to Seattle and I was there from kindergarten until the end of eighth grade. Oh. Um, and then we moved back, we moved to Ann Arbor after that. So I went to high school in Ann Arbor. Oh, um, oh, yeah. oh, oh, was that a hard move moving in the eighth grade? I was pretty happy about it, uh, in some oh, ways. Really? I mean, I had friends that I missed there. Um, but I had gone to like a, I did like a gifted elementary school thing and it was not at my neighborhood school. It was at a different school. Yeah. And that was like an excellent experience. Um, I, the peer effects were fun. I really liked the people that I knew there. I learned a ton. I mean, it was great. It was like probably a part of my, I probably cemented part of my like conception of myself and that it was centered around, you know, academic achievement stuff. Oh yeah. What kind of, um, what kind of student were you as a kid? So you were uh, super smart. You were going to like a, like a super smart school. Yeah. It was like within the, the public school district we lived in um like super suburban sprawl area outside of seattle so now it's called sammamish but it wasn't called sammamish when i lived there it was called unincorporated king county uh-huh. and we lived like in a this is like the absolute forefront of like newly built subdivisions mm-hmm. um it was a lot of like microsoft people because oh. this was like in between redmond and issaquah yeah uh and like the first half of the time we lived there my backyard was just this big these big woods and I'd go back there oh, and man. Yeah. Do, I was a Dungeons and Dragons kid and I would, like, uh, you know, I had this like a pocket knife and I would try to throw this pocket knife into a log, like <laughs> hours and hours at a time with a hit rate of like, you know, 4%. Right. Um, and then second half that, that got all that land got bought and turned into new homes, uh-huh. um, which had a little fun chunk of time where it was a construction site. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of like D and D stuff. At yeah. construction sites too. So I'd go play back there. You what with um, your buddies? You had you had like a buddy of some buddies that, that doing D and I'm sorry, this cat. Oh, yeah. This, oh, I've got great. a cat that's all over me right now. Um, <laughs> you 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 had a you you were really into Dungeons and Dragons with some close friends. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I just I have like really good memories of that. I just actually like reconnected with a friend from that that time period um, who still plays D and D, and like my kids are kind of interested in it a little bit. And I just thought it was great. Like it totally hinged on my friend David's older brother being cool and willing to DM for us yeah. and patient. And like, I don't know. I just, I remember him being like the definition of a cool guy. Um, mm. Not to say that's wrong, but I thought he was a cool guy. And uh, he had the, he had the willingness, he had the creativity, he had the patience to kind of get us all into it and shepherd us in. Um, and it's like a fun thing to do because yeah, it's totally, completely wide open. Yeah. Um, there's like these really interesting restrictions on how interactions have to go, mm. but it, it's like, you can be as creative as you want. It's so, it was really fun. So remember like 
staying up late in basements playing D and D. And then, you know, you can parlay that into like fun times in the woods and oh, it was really man. cool. Yeah. That's, that was really, that's a, not, some of that is, is so similar to my growing up that it's impossible to throw that knife into the, into a it's lock. really hard. I know. I know. You have to have a special knife. I think it's got to be weighted. Everything um in the movies and stuff, where they would be like hit it every time. I'd be like, what is wrong no. with my knife? It's impossible. I know it's that like heavy, like Swiss Army knife base does not want to stick into the log. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. D- Dungeons and Dragons is so it's so romantic because it's also it's real creative, but it's it's really you know facilitates a lot of friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you kind of have to trust the people you're with to open up your creativity to them. Yeah, yeah. They say that they say the psychological sense of community is a small group of people that meet regularly with a common purpose. And I could imagine Dungeons and Dragons fits that perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. That's a good. I like that definition. I know it it creates. You know, it's almost like community. When you believe in that definition, community is almost like deterministic. You can't you can't avoid it if you're just meeting regularly with a common purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you did that and then you had to leave, you left Seattle, you were around all those woods and stuff. What was it like in Ann Arbor? That was great. I mean, so <clears throat> after, so that I, I went to like my neighborhood junior high school that my, I went to elementary school through sixth grade and then back to the neighborhood school. And I knew kids in my neighborhood too. That was fun. Um, but it was, you know, like it was one of these situations where lots of schools are feeding into uh, a higher level school. Yeah. And I like had gone to a different place than the other feeder schools. So it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't love junior high, but it wasn't like traumatic or awful. Right. It just felt like a little outsider-ness. Um, and so I wasn't too sorry to uh, move somewhere where I was, you know, it was like going to be normal to be new um, right. entering high school oh, in a new yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. You know? yeah. So there wasn't like this little back story of like, oh, well, you went to this other weird school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was just like, oh, you're just a new kid. And everybody I, was this was like everybody was kind of a stranger in the eighth yeah. grade almost. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I like had I don't know. I mean, this was so I, after I moved on from D and I had a, another kind of like junior high school crew and we'd go, we'd rock climb a lot, which yeah. was a really fun thing to do, especially when you're like a scrawny little 110 pound mm. seventh grader. Cause you can do things with, you can do things that like these strong guys can't do when you're, you're little. Oh like yeah, that. totally. Right. Um, and you know, Seattle was like lousy with that stuff. And so we could like ride our bikes into town and go climb at this park for free. And it was, that was another, like, it was just this great pivot from one wholesome thing to a different wholesome thing. Yeah. So when we moved to Ann Arbor, I was like, yeah, I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to, it's 1997. So bleach my hair strapped on my puka shell necklace and I like strolled in ready to be the coolest guy in the new school. That's awesome. You're kind of a survivor. It sounds like you're, you're like a social survivor. You can, you can adapt really easily. Is that right? I think so. Although when I think back to it, I think I was sort of like a, a shy or standoffish more than I am now. I think I've like been fortunate to know and love a lot of extroverted people who spent time being like, well, how do they do it? And I can't quite totally pull it off, but um, I've become more comfortable being that way now than I than I was before. You seem like you enjoy being a friend. Is that is that accurate? Oh, definitely. Uh, and I think it's it's again, it's like something that I've thought more explicitly about as I've gotten older. Like, what does yeah. it mean? What what is was important to it? What is important to me about 
being a friend or having friends. And, you know, like there have been times where I reached out to friends because I needed support for something yeah. and they were just there. They just picked up the phone and listened and like showed me a lot of love. And um, that made a huge impression on me, both in terms of like it's out there for me and then what it would be, how important it is to be that person who picks up the phone. Right, right, right. So you made a, a good group of friends. You mentioned you're in high school, You everybody's new. So in some ways it's like the social networks haven't really been formed yet. Yeah. So you were do you were you kind of sorted into some more outdoorsy kind of stuff? Well, in Ann Arbor, it was like I got there, I played soccer too. And so oh. I got there. Um, and that was like I didn't used to when back in the D D days, I didn't go, no one called me bacon. People yeah. actually back <laughs> uh people called me GB back then. Uh-huh. I don't know why that that's what it was. And uh I got to Ann Arbor. Um I remember I went there with my dad like three weeks before we all moved just to, I needed to try out for a soccer team and there were like house things to get settled. And he and I lived in this like extended stay hotel for three weeks. And it was, you know, it was like a unique little chunk of time. And I went to go try out for this soccer team. And, uh, this friend, this guy who became a friend of mine was just like, Oh, Hey, we're going to call you bacon. Mm-hmm. And then they did. Um, so I did a lot of, I played soccer. That was like, that was, a, a, it's a, a great friend. nickname. It's a great nickname. I know. I know. I mean, once it's it, like, once yeah. you once you explain it, it's hard yeah, to forget. Yeah, yeah. You're like, and kids is... like it too. Little kids really think it's funny. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. It's great having a nickname. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not everybody gets to have one, and so it's like it's great that I mean it's your name too, but it's like mm-hmm. it's it's fun being called. I always have loved being called by my my last name. I've always, I like because it's kind of a term of affection, but yeah, or even kind of so. respect. It's like it depends on who says it, but it's like either it's respectful or it's. Uh, or it's like affectionate. Yeah. So you're, so what were you saying? I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh no. I was just like, I played soccer. I, I grew up playing violin. So I like played in the orchestra. That was like just one class in school too. Um, and then, you know, like I found a group of high school friends who I really had a lot of fun with too. It was great. I mean, I really liked those guys. So you pick up an instrument in high school. Cause I was going to ask you about that. You, you sort of have a natural musical talent. I started playing violin when I was like four or like even before I, a little bit before I, I mean, when you, when you're three and you start playing violin, you get a little cardboard box. I had a cracker jack box uh-huh. with like wood paneled contact paper on it and a ruler. Cause you got to like put your hand in a weird position. It's not, mm-hmm. it, it's the way you need to do it to play the violin correctly, but it's not supernatural. So little kids just need to get the physical part down. Um, but I grew up, yeah, I grew up playing that way. Um, like lessons and like little community orchestras when I was younger, um, and it was great. I mean, it was a slog for a bunch of it. There were lots of times where like, I didn't feel like doing it. Um, but you know, my parents encouraged me to stick with it and I'm super glad I did. Cause it was a skill that was, had a lot of pieces that were transferable to other instruments and other kinds of music that I like playing now. And I'm sure I wouldn't be able to do those things if I didn't have this like law, this huge base of experience and knowledge playing, playing violin. Yeah. So wait, it, do you, is it most of you have a bunch of instruments? Are they all string instruments? Yeah, we have drums now. Yeah, uh, and then I sort of like picked up a little bit of drum, not nothing great. So basically, what happened is like in high, towards the end of high school, I had a bunch of friends who were starting to play guitar, and they were playing like "Wish You Were Here," Pink uh-huh. Floyd, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Redemption song, anything with a little like flat picking and like easy strumming, and uh-huh. they were okay at it. And I remember thinking like, well, I, rather than listening to you kind of hack through these songs, why don't I hack through them? And then 
the summer between high school and college, I hurt my knee um, playing soccer and I had a knee surgery and I was just in bed. I had nothing to do all summer long. I think I watched like the Ken Burns jazz documentary and I read and I just sat around and just noodled on the guitar all summer because I was just physically stuck there. And it was a huge like level up in my ability to noodle around on things. Uh, and that was great. I mean, then I, then I got to college and played in like bands in college and, um, was that at college is your first time to be in a band. Yeah. I wasn't really in a band in high school cause it was, this was all happening like at the end of my senior year, but mm-hmm. it was fun to be able to, to reproduce music that I was listening to. Um, which at the time was like a lot of grateful dead and jam bands and stuff. Um, and 60s rock uh and then in yeah and in college i was in some bands uh that was really fun that was a good way to like get to know people um and then in grad school uh my wife Saye and i were in a band with professors at michigan for like seven years and then at vanderbilt we were the professors in a band with a student um mm-hmm. and so actually now that takes us almost to now and i'm like that's one of the things i miss most is being in a band because so is it you miss being in the band I, i'm just now piecing kind of together just a hypothesis it's like it, the social part's a big part of being in a band yeah that's part of it too and then i just i think i get a lot of expression out through music too yeah you know like you can you can feel your feelings when you're yelling a song or doing you know things can be i don't know it's just a way to get stuff out um it's like it's very cathartic a lot of the time yeah. and these are all just like cover bands you know we're just playing songs that we like mm-hmm. but I don't know. It feels really good to me to be able to do that. And I, I miss it a lot. So you end up going to college. Where do you end up going to college? Um, I went to McAllister College, which is in St. Paul. I can, I don't think I'm looking the right way from my window to see it from here. But um, yeah, I mean, it was like, uh, I remember knowing, I didn't really know much about, I guess people applied a ton of colleges. I applied to like five places, I think. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, we had visited my, my aunt lives in the, in Minneapolis. Um, and so we'd visited, I spent a lot of time here just on visits as a kid yeah. and we'd go by my parents when we lived here, my parents knew people who had gone to McAllister. Um, and so it was a known quantity in my life a little bit. Um, and I thought it was cool. I thought the whole idea of liberal arts stuff sounded pretty cool. Um, to be honest, I was like psyched to go to college because I was not going to have to take any more math. No, you didn't like, like math in college in no, high school. In high school, not. I mean, I did it, but um, I didn't. I didn't love it, and I just don't think I was like emotionally prepared to understand it fully. I could kind of get through it, but I, I didn't. I didn't have the love for it. Right. Um, and so we, yeah. So I, so I went to McAllister. Um, it was great. I mean, it just it totally changed my life. I think there's lots of things I would. I wouldn't be doing any of this right now if I hadn't gone to McAllister for sure. What was what happened at McAllister that was so so life transforming? Uh, well, I was like, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't wanting to do math or like hard science stuff. I was, I'd always been pretty interested in policy and anti-poverty policy. Um, I think there was something vague about inequality and poverty that I thought was like bothered me, but I, I didn't really have a good way to focus like things I could do into the, that thing that I was on my mind and I cared about. And, um, I got there and I took, um, I took, I mean, I took a lot of classes in the first year. I remember taking like this urban studies course. That was one of these meets once a week, uh, three hour long things. And it was taught by this guy named George Latimer, who had been the mayor of St. Paul, uh, you know, some decade or so before. And it was a ton of guest speakers. It was cool. It was like a really good in- intro to just a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people with experience coming to tell you firsthand about stuff, which was cool. That was exciting. 
but it didn't really like lead to like, here's a method you can use to go down this path. Ah. Um, but I, and, and at the same time I took an econ class, um, that was called economics for the citizen. Oh, uh, and it was supposed to be, it was pitched as like, here's an econ class. It's all about these economic ideas, but there's, we're not going to do any of the math or there's not gonna be hard graphs or anything like that. Um, and it was co-taught by, I, th I think he was the chair of the department at that time. This guy, Vasant Sukhatme, who was like a micro theorist and Mike McPherson, who was the president of McAllister. He was like a, they were both Chicago guys. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I think now I could probably formulate proper constructive criticisms of the, of the class, but I could not at the time because I hated it and I misunderstood almost everything about it. And I did poorly in it and I just kind of embarrassed myself. Um, actually, the TA of that class was uh, an environmental economist at Berkeley now named Jim Salee, who's just like a brilliant guy. And he, I found some of the essays I wrote for it recently. Uh, and they had already been through the gym filter, which made them way better. And they were still like not very good at all. So I took this class and I spent my whole first year like ranting kind of about how economics is horrible. Economists are like these crass, like automatons. I just, I hated everything about it. Hey. Um, and I had, uh, I had, um, I had some friends who I think just got kind of sick of it. And they're like, look, if you really hate it so much, you should actually take proper intro course, you know, so you know what you're talking about. Oh, were they in econ? Yeah. I, there, so McAllister has a ton of international students uh, and a lot of, you know, I, I, I remember once hearing this, someone asked this guy once like, well, why do all the international students major in economics? And he was like, what do you think we're going to do? Come here and major in American history. <laughs> uh, so they weren't all economists, but they were, you know, they were taking econ classes. They were um, more, more so than I was at the time. Right. So I, I got in, I took the principles with um, a professor named Sarah West, who's like, I love, and I still am close with. And she was like, she's a great economist. She's like a wonderful person. She's an awesome communicator. She's a fantastic teacher. And um, I think it was her, I think it was her like rigor plus, per, plus personality that, that brought me along. And so I was like, okay, I can listen to, I can, I can dig into this from Sarah. Um, and I remember really distinctly reading um, just pretty simple. This is like 2002. So we're kind of like in the first chunk of research coming out about the 1996 welfare reform. And that had been on my, you know, that was happening when I was forming some of these preferences uh, right. and these interests, but I didn't know the political rhetoric about it, it was very identity based. It got really nasty. It was it felt yeah. messy. Yeah. And then when I saw someone put a kinked looking budget constraint up and say, well, welfare reform did this, uh, or it added this this change to someone's um, choice set. Right. I thought this is great. I mean, I really liked it, and the reason I liked it is because it felt like it was it felt fair in a sense because it was like anybody who had a low wage and found themselves on this part of their budget constraint and had a you know convex preferences would do something similar to this. It's not about who you are. It's just it felt like a cleaner way to think about the choices involved, wow. and it linked up with data in a really nice way. And so that kind of scratched this itch and, and at the same time provided a, a tool and a method. Um, and I really liked that. So I got, that kind of kept, that got me starting to turn my attitude around a little bit. Mm. Um, and I kind of kept going and then I just, I, I, it was fortunate to be followed. It's kind of like I needed two or three good ones in a row. Um, and I took a class about like comparative economic systems after that, which I just was interesting. That was kind of like global history, comparative, like comparing, uh, it was taught by a guy who um, named Gary Kruger who I also really like, who got his PhD in 1989 
uh, in the field. His field was Soviet economics. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so then he became a transition economist. And he had super interesting, you know, yeah. on the ground, just practical stuff to say. It was great. So I had a couple of good experiences in a row. And that just started to get me on this track of like, well, actually, I do like this. And I was doing okay in it. So I was like, and I, and I can do it. And I, I kept on going that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, and it, but it's, it's really close to applied work and it's really close to poverty. Yeah. It's just an econ. It's like, it's the three, it's kind of the three things. And this kind of something you say, you're saying about this, uh, you're, you're talking about models too. Yeah. I mean, that was an important part of organizing your thinking about what people might do and why, like, why would we think this would even happen? Um, right. So yeah, that, that was a, that was important too. Yeah. So you apply to grad school or you, you when do you, how, if you hadn't have, if you hadn't ended up doing that econ, do you think you still would have wanted to go to grad school and what would you have made your, what would. Yeah. Been? I think I would have done something. I don't know. Maybe I would have tried to go like a law school route, something like that. Cause I, I did care about like the policy side. So I think I would have tried to find something that would have gotten me involved in analyzing or influencing or talking about policy in some way. I, um, but I don't know what it would have been. I don't know. I mean, I, it's really hard counterfactual for me to think through because I don't know how much of my, like what I find satisfying about, you know, econometrics or using data or, or, you know, using economics to think about these policies. I don't know how much of that just comes from having been in it so long. Maybe I would feel the same way about, you know, legal analysis if that's what I had done. I don't know. Um, but I think it would have been something like that. Um, but I, so I, uh, I didn't go right to grad school. Uh, I was like, I was working on, like I worked on a, a senior thesis really hard about, about welfare reform. You know, I was trying to figure out like the problem, among, there are two way fixed effects problems with uh, analyzing welfare reform, um, which actually were kind of like hinted at in this really interesting little AR PNP by um, Jonah Gelbach, uh, Hillary Hoynes, and Marion Bittler. But the other thing that's hard, even independent of like the econometric -y stuff, is just that it happened in the late 90s, which is like a huge uh, labor demand shift outward for low income workers, low skill, low skill labor. Um, and so by the time I was studying it, 2004, four-ish, uh, we had already had the 2001 recession. So I was trying to see if I could use that recessionary period to separate out like how much did the policies do and how much did the economy really do. Um, so I worked really hard on that. Uh, and I, so that was like, that was a major preoccupation because during my senior year, right, the, right just prior to my senior year, uh, my dad died of pancreatic cancer. Mm. And I was really, that was hard. I mean, that was hard to know what to do like should i stay at school or should i go home how to spend my time i mean that level of grief was totally new and to me i didn't know how to handle that happened fast that would have been yeah that was he was diagnosed in august 2004 and he died in october 2004 oh andrew um, sorry well it was interesting i mean yeah so that that was like that was going on and one of the practical things that it did for my trajectory is that it just it left me like no bandwidth to think about and apply for jobs at the time that everybody else was doing it. I was grieving and I was preoccupied and I was working on this honors thesis. So I didn't apply for stuff right away. Um, and I wound up at, you know, going, moving back to Ann Arbor for the summer after I graduated and then um, apply, I applied to a job 
at the Spencer Foundation, which is like an education kind of foundation research place, which was actually then headed by Mike McPherson, who taught that first class that I did so badly in. Um, that was in Chicago. He did not hire me, but I remember at this time, I was kind of like, you know, this is like late in the undergrad hiring cycle time. He was like, oh, well, I have a friend at the Chicago Fed who um, they actually hired an RA, but that person backed out of the deal to go take some other job. So they weirdly have an opening at a, at a time they normally would not have one. And I think this was even like when I was in Chicago interviewing for this job. So I like went over to the Fed and interviewed for this RA position and wound up getting an RA job at the Chicago Fed, which was a, a better job than I was even trying to get. I mean, I was really lucky to get that one. And I that was like, a that was another kind of watershed. I think like McAllister was an important thing. Taking Sarah's class was important. Uh, this was really important in keeping me on this trajectory. Otherwise, yeah. I don't. I could have gone another direction at that point too. You don't go straight to grad school. You work at the Chicago Fed for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we worked there for two years, um, and I that was a ton of practical, just knowledge and lessons. Like I remember printing out someone's do file, some short little do file, and writing in pen like what every line of the do file did because I was pretty new to Stata coding as well. Um, and I worked there, you know, it was a total typical fed job in that I worked on, I got special sworn status and I worked on some RDC projects. I worked on, uh, I got drawn into some really interesting stuff, uh, about the EITC and consumption with Leslie McGranahan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just got a bunch of coding skills. I got experience with data. Um, I took classes, I took math classes that I didn't have at that point. And, um, yeah, it was excellent. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was a really good experience. Um, and it was a perfect, I mean, that those jobs are like fantastic springboards for grad school applications. Yeah. How come what you just look so good on paper? Yeah. And they're known, they're known quantities. I think everybody knows like what the selection is on the front end of like hiring fed RAs. They're good jobs. So you can pick people who are good to begin with. Yep. And then I, the, the mentorship and the experience is is like real human capital. Um, yep. so I think people coming from fed jobs can say with a lot of specificity, I can do this or I worked on this and, and that's really helpful. Right, 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 right. So you, you, you go there for a couple of years and I mean, it's kind of interesting that you're going to end up back at Michigan and that's where you go to high school. But I mean, you probably got a lot of options. How come you pick Michigan? Uh, well, I don't know. I didn't, I mean, I had some options, I guess. I, I think I had, I think I got into Texas and Maryland I think, mm. and I don't remember what the money situation was. I want to say, None of them gave me money or one of them gave me a little bit of money, but I definitely took loans in my first year of grad school. Um, But I wanted to go to Michigan because Rebecca Blank worked there. Ah. And she was the person who had written those like TANF articles that we were reading in my principal's class. Ah. So I was really eager to work with her. And she actually sadly just died this year. Um, uh, So she was someone who I'd met once or twice just in office meetings. Um, But still, despite not a lot of meetings, she had a huge effect on like what I was interested in and getting me into economics and bringing me to Michigan. But I actually never overlapped with her because she left Michigan before I got there immediately. Yeah. Yeah, So um, he goes become provost immediately or something. I think I can't remember if she went right to Wisconsin uh, or she did something else. Um, But she was gone when I got there. I see. Um, So, you know, it was like 06, 07. Yeah, uh, I uh, started at the Chicago Fed in like the summer of 2005, uh-huh. late summer, early fall. And then it was two, yeah, and then it was like, yeah, 2007. So my first year of grad school was 07, 08, uh-huh. which I think about this too. Like, think about how lucky that timing is, right? This is like the beginning of the Great Recession, and I've just entered this protected little cove 
yeah. of grad school where I'm not subject to the labor market at all. Um, it was, it, I mean, it could have been any number of years on either side of that and uh, another completely different trajectory. Totally, totally, totally. So you get at Michigan, Rebecca Blank's not there. You must be a little bummed, but then, you know, so what, what you kind of pivot because you're this survivor. I mean, it's the, the story I'm kind of thinking in my head. And so you pivot and what, what was that first year like? What professor? Oh, well, you know, the first year, you know, it, it, I wasn't going to be talking to her and doing research first year anyway. So it's just time to like do your first year stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was fun. I mean, I don't think about a lot of those things anymore. Uh, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of discussion, like what should be taught in grad school. And I, I for me, there was some value in doing, doing these problems, learning mm -hmm. these learning, you know, economic theory at the level of a first year PhD that even though I don't do it on a day-to-day -day basis, it was like, here's a way to think, here's like what a level of rigor looks like. Um, and that was, that was helpful. I think that was, I think that was a useful thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. so it's just like trying to get through those classes and, um, you know, there were some, I was like maybe medium level prepared for it. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't like having to do tons of catch up, but there were people who were coming in just like acing stuff. Um, actually I remember it something, ah, where I, this, this development guy named Gautam Rao was like a master's student at that time. And he was taking all our PhD classes and just smoking everybody. Uh, um, so <laughs> there were some really, really good people at, at uh, that first year type of stuff. Yeah. 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 So you end up though, kind of the two people I kind of think of when I think of you there, I think, uh, D John DiNardo and Martha Bailey, they, you sort of end up becoming close with both of them. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, cause uh, so what happened is like my second year, um, uh, my second year I took labor and public finance. Um, and so that was like the, I was getting the sort of Michigan labor treatment. I had John bound, I had Charlie Brown. Um, I had a really wonderful chunk of like macro labor kind of search theory stuff from Mike Elsby, who's at Edinburgh now, who I think despite everybody that I'm happy to talk about who I love so much, I think Mike was the best professor I had for anything. Mm. Like you couldn't get out of Mike's class without understanding what he wanted you to understand. He was so good. So there was like a little chunk where I was doing some macro stuff and some search theory stuff. And I was like, kind of getting it. And I, that was exciting. I thought it was cool. And I thought the search aspect was a super realistic thing to add to a modeling exercise. And so I, when I saw that this is a new framework for thinking about how labor markets function, and it's based on like a deeply realistic thing that happens, like people need to meet and there's yeah. bargaining. Right. I really liked that a lot. I thought that was very cool. I took, I remember taking a, I took this like topics course with Miles Kimball. That was, uh, it was like all of these theorems that he had devised about that. Like, you know how sometimes you have a problem and one way to tackle it is to solve like a smaller problem and try to work up to it. I think what I learned is that Miles' solution was to solve like a much larger problem that completely encompasses the thing that you're talking about. So he'd be like, oh, here are, here's a theorem that I, that I figured out that will tell you all these things about the policy function just from features of the utility function. And you can just, you can just jump over big chunks of this problem. And yeah. I, I figured it out. And he's like, if you want to use it in a paper, just let, let me know. And I'll write it up and publish it. And then you can cite it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I spent a little time thinking about that stuff, but when I got, got um, connected with um, Martha was because so my friend, Jess Hoyle, who's like a development person in Colorado had been working with her on some of the coding of like the early legal access to contraception laws. Yeah. And she was like, Oh, you know, Martha's got um, 
like a need for a short-term RA thing. Um, so I did like a little kind of one-off hourly wage thing. I, mean, I don't even remember what I was doing. I think I was coding um, family planning policy or legislation or something for her, her work on family planning, federally funded family planning centers. Uh, and then that was good. So then we, she said, okay, well, let's, let's try something else. And we worked on another thing, another little short-term thing. And, you know, we got along and I was apparently doing good enough work to, to continue. Um, and so then, then that, the next level of sort of the like job offer from Martha was like, okay, well, I'll, I think she was, I think I got RA funding off a grant of hers for one of my semesters. And then we started, this was like early in her time transitioning from postdoc to assistant professor and then wading through and cleaning up all of the grant information that you can get on war on poverty programs. Wow. So she had like pioneered the use of this like uh, archival data set of federal war on poverty grants. But it's trickier than that because it's pretty cool to have an uh, archival file that just tells you like, here's all the grants and here's where they went and here's how much they were and here's what they were for. But the file's not that clean. So if you want to do a really good job of pulling out like one program at a time, you kind of need to check the file against all the primary sources you can get your hands on. So I was working on our on community health centers, which we wrote a paper on. And it was, you know, you think you're going to go into this electronic data set, do a little string search thing and pull out the health center grants and be done. But you're not done. You got to go to libraries and archives and find like directories of community health centers and check like, is there is there, there's a grant in Birmingham, Alabama in 1967, but is there actually a health center listed in Birmingham, Alabama in 1967? Like sometimes yes, sometimes no. So mm. that was like a cool introduction to historical research. Yeah. Cause it, it wasn't, that was a totally different skill than data cleaning or coding. It was a totally different skill than econometrics. It right. was just this willingness to sleuth and yeah. search and, and nail down these details. And that's something that I think I learned from getting drawn into economic history, which I love, um, is that people are gonna people are gonna make you get those details right for the most part, and and really, and they know enough to know what the details are. Like they don't gloss over stuff, um, right? And it, I love it; it's really cool. Yeah, did that kind of come naturally to you, being like enjoying that kind of thing? Were you you? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think I don't know why. I mean, I mean, now I now I'm glad that I was inclined to do that, but I don't know what made me see this um see this task you know figure out which counties received grants for a community health center how much and in what year yeah and then really chase it down and like doubt well i don't know if that's quite right let me check let me check this let me check this i think the library part was fun mm -hmm. i really like uh, the primary um, source material searching and um yeah i mean now i would explain it now i have like i know more about econometrics and I could say, well, it's of course it's very important to like minimize the level of measurement error in your right-hand side variable. But that's not what would have come out of my mouth in like 2009. I just thought it was fun to track it down, and I was like, well, we're supposed to do this correctly, so let's do it correctly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right, and right. it was fun. Right. That's that you're you're getting that because that the culture or the mindset of the economic historians is that that they just that it's not it's not like for the necessarily the, the cleanness of the econometrics. It's just like, that's, this is what we do. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And there's, um, you know, like Trevon Logan says, like one of our most powerful methods is counting. And yeah. A lot of the time that comes down to stuff like that. Um, and that's just, that's not, um, that's just knowing what, 
what you're looking at and what you're working with and, and how to interpret like a number. I mean, you might have a table, but you got to know where that number came from. Like I remember sitting in an economic history talk and someone was talking about tractors. I mean, tractors are like an extremely important thing in American economic history. Mm. Like barbed oh. wire is important. Tractors are important. Like oh. mechanical cotton pickers are important. These, there's like these big, you can, you can get really detailed about like where these come from and what they do. And someone had the ag, an ag census and they were talking about like tractors per farm and someone raised their hand. And they're like, but what does it mean when someone writes down that they have two tractors? Like, what does that actually mean? And it was a really good question. What do you count as a tractor? Like, it, does it, how big is it? What, what, um, how powerful is it? Like what jobs are you using it for? Do you need other attachments for the tractor to actually like use it to effectively increase your crop yield? I mean, it's an interesting question. And so you gotta, you gotta get pretty detailed. You can't just pull that stuff down and be like, Oh, two tractors is the answer. Cause that could mean a lot of things. And so there's a, it's a really nice complementarity between knowing a ton about like the context and the world that you're studying from and drawing that knowledge from like all sorts of places and then having the skills to map that stuff to, you know, the economics and the empirical exercise that you're actually doing. I have never thought about the tractor. I grew up in Mississippi and I'm surrounded by tractors, but the, the tractor was a really pivotal machine in economic yeah. culture. Yeah. I'm not going to remember the like necessary, the tractor sites, but um, you know, there's lots of people who do this sort of American economic history uh and agriculture stuff it's it's really fascinating wow um, there's so many angles on it and it's not just a matter of like downloading a data set and figuring stuff out like uh like here's a good example i just saw a talk at the economic history association uh, and i'm really i talked to the author after she was great um i'm really sorry i forget uh uh the site here but it was about um this is like you'll like this it's like kind of cosian it's like it was about barbed wire and it was about who is responsible for putting up a barbed wire fence. Is the rancher whose, whose cattle will go eat the crops responsible for fencing in his cattle? Or is the, is the farmer whose crops will get eaten by the cows the one who's responsible for walling off his crop? Yep. And different counties would have different sort of like um, uh, uh, liability type rules and fence laws over time. Um, and it would change. And it was really interesting. Oh, so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, so Donardo, though, uh, Professor Donardo, you, you, you are, he's not an economic historian, right? No, but Donardo thought about like tons of stuff. So I knew John um, in the band. So John was a keyboard player in the grad school band. And I started playing in that band in my first year. Uh, uh, and so I would go over to Gary Solon's house every weekend for years. And, you know, John was a super interesting, charismatic, like, just a weird guy. I mean, John was someone in economics who he just had a different way of being in economics than most anyone else. I mean, he was, uh, his parents were Italian immigrants. He lived in, he grew up in Allen park, Michigan. He was like real plugged in. He was like big in the, the labor movement. Um, mm -hmm. and he had this point of view on labor economics, labor markets. I mean, he himself, like I, I should, you should ask me no follow-up questions about this because I don't know a ton about it, but you know, he would, he would talk a lot about like how he was an anarcho syndicalist and he, <laughs> he had like a, he, he, he advocated for like a, or he, he, he dreamed of a, a society organized around kind of like autonomous, like sort of worker collectives. Uh -huh. um, so interesting, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. You, you talk to John and, and the conversations would be wide ranging, you know, it'd go from like labor stuff to like Harry Potter <laughs> to uh -huh. uh, you know, um, 
how Italian anarchists would get blamed for things like they're like, sorry. Okay. So there was like this huge molasses flood in Boston in 1919. I don't know if you know about this. There was a huge vat of molasses and it exploded. It killed people. It like destroyed pieces of like, uh, uh, rail equipment and stuff. It was a really big deal. Molasses. And, uh, molasses. Mm -hmm. It's flammable or what's the deal? No, it just, um, it just was a huge, uh, uh, vat of the stuff and super uh, hot. It, yeah, I think it was. I think it was stored hot, but it was a cold. It was in the winter, so it was a cold day. And I don't know. I actually, you know, it's a good question of why it was actually so damaging. But it was pretty bad. Like this molasses flood was no joke. Um, and at first, the company blamed Italian anarchists for blowing it up. I mean, they did that. It's not what happened, but that was their knee jerk thing. Was like, oh, the Italian anarchists did it. <laughs> so, uh, so John, John was like into the stuff like that. It was so like we, defending their honor. Right? Yeah. 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 So like, you know, talking to John was like that, you know, you'd get a taste of just like everything. Um, and, uh, so I got to know him in that way, just chatting and playing music together for years before I ever really talked to him about economics. Cause I was doing first year stuff, yeah. you know, I was preoccupied with that. Um, so then, uh, you know, he was just someone I liked and really cared about. So when it came time for me to pivot towards kind of research stuff, he was a natural person to just bring it up with, um, and he was a huge influence in terms of like thinking through causal inference and identification. Um, and, and yeah, there, there, he was someone who I really wanted to hear his thoughts on like, you know, things like the philosophy of science. Yeah. yeah. Um, he had, he just was extremely widely read, um, and insightful about stuff like that. And, uh, and so I got to know him that way. And then he had, um, sort of two bouts of leukemia, so he was out uh, and he had a bone marrow transplant after the first one. And he was like out of the classroom for a bit. So I, my interpretation of this period is that he wasn't like gaining new students during that time because he was kind of out, but I knew him through band stuff. Right. So then he had a period of time where he was like in relatively okay health. And so I got like a pretty large dose of John because he didn't have other new incoming students, but he and I were still connected. Yep. So I spent, especially when I finally settled on my job market paper, um, about Medicaid, um, he and I would talk, you know, we'd go sit at this restaurant and for like five hours and talk through it and talk about all this other stuff. You know, he'd go smoke a cigarette, he'd come back in. Uh, and it was really, I mean, I remember that stuff very fondly. Um, but it was fun too, because he used to sort of describe his, um, uh, advising style as like a Columbo type of advising, you know, just see a little thread and just pull on it and keep pulling on it. And usually I'd go sit down and I, you know, I'd have some kind of seemingly complicated question about standard errors or bootstrapping or some, should I do this other fancy thing? And he would, he would be like, okay, just hold on. Can you just tell me like, what is on the left-hand side of this regression? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but typically asking questions like that was actually the right place to start. And usually you didn't even need to do the fancy thing you were thinking of. You just had to think through that a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was great. So, I mean, I guess he was influential to me in a lot of ways. Uh, some technical, I mean, some not technical, like how do you navigate this profession as like, what, what's it, what are the different options for just like even getting through a life in econ? He had like a very different style of doing it than other people, which was super valuable to see. Uh, but then more technically, you know, he was a big time, he was a really clear thinker on research design and identification. Um, he showed me how to think about the philosophy of science and what you're doing at very high level, but connected to like practical stuff. Um, and then even just the focus on like asking like these really simple questions about stuff first and like, and not getting 
not spinning your analysis up into something more complicated than needs to be. Like he was very good at, at that, you know, like even the reweighting paper is just a beautiful paper because you need some technical stuff to make it work. But the reweighting distributions is all about just showing something compelling and, and basically pretty simple in the end. Mm-hmm. So this two-way fixed effects paper of yours, uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit or a lot about it. So, um, it it's its birth is at Michigan kind of earlier. It even seems like, right. It's not at the end. Oh, definitely. How, what it, so what's the origin of this paper? Well, Martha and I had been working on this community health centers paper. Um, and that is a, the way that paper works is uh, we had data on county level mortality rates. You can get that back to 1959. And we had from the archival exercise, we had information on like which counties received community health centers for the first time at which years. So perfect staggered timing. I mean, we had a ton of untreated counties, but we had, you know, 150, 200 maybe places that got them anywhere between 1965 and 19, I think we stopped in about 1975, 74. Um, so, you know, we were doing two fixed fixed regressions. Martha was, I think, you know, this is some of her stuff at this era is pre this new diff and diff literature, but like she was a super careful regression runner. You know, we were doing two fixed effects because that's kind of like what you did at that time. But actually, let me just say, like, if you look at her family planning paper, she has a figure in the beginning that is uh, the x-axis is calendar time. And there are three lines. The y, uh, one line is the difference in fertility rates between kind of like early counties and never treated counties, right? So that's kind of like a Callaway and Santana thing. The second line is middle, you know, tr counties treated like late 60s, early 70s, minus the never treated. And then the third line is like the late treated ones minus the never treated. So three lines, each of which are approximations to like a well-defined definitive yeah. that we would talk about now. Right. And she, she put that in there just because I think she's was like a rigorous, sensible person who was like, well, this would be a good way, hands above the table to show what the data show without doing, um, it's clear what I'm doing. Let's just show this. Yep. So she was bringing that level, you know, of care to these regressions. Um, and I, I'll, and one specific way I can say that is like, if you look in our community health centers paper, we never report like one definitive coefficient. We have these events, we have really good looking two-way fixed effects event studies. And then to the extent that we aggregate them, we do like little bins, like short run, long run, but we never fully went for like just one number because it kind of didn't make sense. Um, or I remember looking at um, versions of those event study estimates with and without county specific time trends. And all that happened is you took a really good looking event study and you put a time trend in and it just rotated the whole thing around. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, that's weird. I can get anything I want. I'll just put in a quadratic and it'll kind of to put it through this funhouse mirror that didn't seem right so we didn't do that um all right anyway, but so we had these like results we were like this is amazing this you know we have good looking results we have auxiliary data that suggests that there's like a pretty strong first stage we have lots of evidence on historical evidence on what these places were doing like these pieces of this is like really coming together into a, a good story meaningful experiment strong results good, like important interpretation in terms of how to improve health in poor, poor areas. Yep. So it was time to write the thing up. And uh, in the method section, there was a sentence, I think Martha wrote, uh, we exploit variation in the timing of health center establishment. Mm. I remember reading it and thinking like, well, yeah, that's true. But there's, you know, 2,900 
untreated counties in this thing, like what are they doing? Yeah. So, and then and it got changed for a little while to something like we exploit variation in the location of health centers. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true too. But we also had some auxiliary stuff where we dropped the untreated counties. And so I was like, well, if that regression is spitting out coefficients, then there's something about the timing that matters too. It's like something that's, that's both things. Uh, and so I really only have like one tool, which is the frisch theorem. So I just started like kind of trying to figure out what, what a, even a single regression coefficient could mean by just doing algebra, taking out the unit fixed effects, subtracting them from the treatment variable, subtracting the time fixed effects from the treatment variable, you know, these means or whatever. And I, that was probably 2010, I bet, two, maybe 2011. No, it was 2010 because I remember we lived in DC for a year um, when SIA uh, was on Council of Economic Advisors. And I remember sitting at our, our teeny weeny little table in our tiny DC apartment, like working on this. Um, and I just kept on doing the algebra wrong. It's like kind of a pain to crank through it. And I was doing the algebra in kind of an inefficient roundabout way, but it started to like make a little bit of sense. I have some early stuff where I'm like, well, it's like this difference penalized by this difference. And it was, it wasn't a clear way to express it, but it wasn't totally wrong. Um, and then there was a time, I mean, then it, then it just kind of went in my drawer. Uh, and I remember I got to Vanderbilt and it kind of had started settling on this average of diff and diffs, average of like two by two terms in some sense. Um, and I gave a talk at um, Arizona and I, I saw Gary Solon, you know, and I was just, this was in my, he, he's so good at this stuff too. He's like a really clear econometric kind of empirical labor person. And I remember mentioning this and he, and he gave me some like, you know, fair, sensible encouragement. He was like, oh, that's an interesting thing to think about. You should see if you can make something of it. Mm. And that came at the right time because I could have easily just put it away and just sat on the sidelines. Um, but that encouragement from Gary was really helpful. Uh, and so I thought, I, I thought I'd return to it. And I, once I kind of settled on this, like once I figured out that I could write this as like an average of diff and diffs, that, I thought that was great because I was like, well, that makes sense. Right. A big diff and diff is an average of small diff and diffs. That's cool. Yeah. It kind of, it always had an echo to me of like the Wald IV theorem, you know, like a big IV coefficient is a, like a linear combination of like little simple things. Yep. Um, and it really, really, really made sense to me as someone who wants to understand complicated things in terms of simple things. I kind of, I kind of think that's the only thing we, we really understand is when yeah, you yeah, yeah. Right. So that felt good. But then the really, really, really key thing um, was being colleagues with Pedro Santana at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Cause it could have just been like a little note, like here's an algebra, here's some algebra. Yeah. But talking to Pedro, I think I learned I learned a huge amount about how to think about this type of estimator decomposition econometrically and crucially like how to map it to an estimand and causal parameters, yeah. which is just not something I was, I really understood very well in grad school. Actually I did, I was not good at working with potential outcomes or these kind of expected conditional expectations type derivations. I was like pretty intimidated by them and I, I didn't, I knew I should kind of understand them, but I didn't understand them that well. And once I had the definitive thing in hand, I was like, well, I know what these averages mean. This is good. And I can plug in these other, this other type of potential outcomes notation. And, and that jump from estimator to a theoretical thing was really important for me, even putting together like how this mode of causal inference even works. I kind of didn't understand it that well mm. back to say 2014, 15. 
Mm-hmm. And it was like talking to Pedro and and working through this example that like really made me better at it in a general way. Yeah, yeah. 2014. Wait, you're a professor in 2014? Yeah. Oh, because I... Oh, no, I was a postdoc. Sorry. You were a postdoc at Vanderbilt? Yeah. Uh, at Berkeley. I was, a, I was the Berkeley. last of the Robert Wood Johnson um, oh, postdocs. You were a Robert Wood Johnson fellow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. You were doing it at Berkeley. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've got this paper. You got this result that it's um, uh, four diff and diffs basically, or, you know, it's the, it's the early, to, early to never late to never early to late, late to never. So before you are working with Pedro, what'd you think about that late to never one? Um, I just thought it was an interesting thing in the data. And you I weren't just like problematic. No, I don't think I had a good sense that it was problematic until I was able to plug in the potential the potential out- outcomes to it. Yeah, it was just like here's a fact. What you a, here's an- when you plugged it in and you saw it? What did you think then? Uh, I think it was a surprise that that could be screwed up in a certain way. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I definitely was not using any words like this is biased for something or this is like wrong or off or attenuate. I wasn't using words like that when it was all algebra. It was like, this is what it is here. This is just a fact. Yep. And then once it was that, it, you know, it's like it, you have to make that leap to using potential outcomes and talking about like theoretical quantities, like treatment effect parameters or parallel trends assumptions, you know, these things that like live up in theory heaven. Yep. You have to talk about those things to even say what bias is, yep. you know? Um, and so uh, that was really important. Uh, I mean, I think I remember like talking to Pedro about it, working on this thing, you know, I was working like late on it one night and I, I don't know, I went on a walk or something like that. And it kind of like crossed my mind, like, Oh, I mean, this is like a simple thing. This is what, you know, econometricians do already, but I just didn't even cross my mind before that, that I could like be combining these two, this algebra that I had already done with like this notation that defines important quantities and, and defines causal effects. And I could put them together. <laughs> I should have known it in the beginning, but I just don't, I think my, I think my ability to understand how econometrics works was kind of like flat for a long time. And then this experience was like a huge uptick in what I actually can even comprehend about how econometrics works. You, you learn so much by doing, you know? Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's like even, it's hard to, I mean, in some ways you want to say to the grad students, you want to say, look, it's learning by doing. So what, you know, you, you got to do and you'll grow and change and there'll be personal growth and intellectual experiences that, you know, are life changing and truly enjoyable. And uh, so this was like, this was one of these truly enjoyable things for you, I bet. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny too, like, as I, so people, when I talk about it, people, I, I, I it's funny how unreproducible uh, this is. Like my, I, Pedro Santana, you know, is like such a generous mm. person with his time. He's a good communicator. I mean, he knows just like more than I'll ever know about this stuff. Yeah. Um, and Same. so, you know, I would go upstairs, like his office was right above mine and I'd go up there and I'd like, have some issue or I'd complain about something or we'd rant about something or I'd have some question and he always had time for it. Yeah. And um, I think it, it, it was like the openness and the positivity plus 
the like deep well of of knowledge was really important because I didn't feel put off. I didn't feel like I was burdening him or like I was saying something stupid. And so then that gave me the the that made me feel like sort of like emotionally and socially willing to keep on thinking about it. I wasn't I wasn't like uh, put off or embarrassed, you know, to go ask Pedro that stuff. Oh. And um I just am always surprised at how um how that side of things shapes what you can learn and do and achieve, you know, like you need, um, you need sort of a base of like certainty about your own position in the world to even like reach out and think new stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, it was like being able to talk to, to talk, uh, and listen and with people with like people with a lot of expertise in a way that I was like comfortable doing that helped me get here. So that that's part of also why I know that you agree with this too, but why I think the communication is so important here. You know, if we had no new difference of differences papers, there would still be a huge amount of work to just communicate them effectively in a way that works for like many different people, many different styles, like people at different levels. That's an, that's a crucial job. If you, if no one ever did that, this new, these new lessons would just be like lost to history. Yeah. So when did you, I totally agree. Yeah. When, when, when did you uh, start to feel you were like, man, this, this paper might be influential, uh, impactful. When, when did that start to happen? Cause it's been, it's been, it's fair to say it's been a little life changing, right? Oh yeah. I don't think I'd be, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's definitely changed like the trajectory of what I work on, what I think about, like internally, you know, I can understand things now that I could never have understand stood if I didn't have this experience. Yep. And it's like the thing that people will know about my research more than anything else forever, probably. I, I bet um, they, I bet a lot of people even feel a certain level of gratitude, even with the paper, which is, you know, I, I'm just now thinking out loud, at least I, a lot of econometrics papers, you sort of feel, you know, like, boy, this is kind of hard. This is, this, this is like, I'm learning this for the prelims, you know, and then yeah. it's, it's really amazing when you're like, Oh God, thanks so much for breaking this down into four different diffs, you know, then <laughs> I didn't realize how easy potential outcomes was. I mean, I think it, I think it really was the, the, the key that unlocked a lot of the other estimators even, you know, I mean, it, it's like, cause even though you don't provide in the paper, a new solution, Although sometimes it did kind of feel like in earlier versions, there was more of a hint of like, here's a possible, I, I feel like that there's parts of the papers I don't really teach anymore. Um, yeah. And I can't remember what it was. It was some other. No, I think there used to be stuff where I would say, here is a decomposition of the 2A fixed effects estimand. And mm -hmm. there's this variance weighted treatment effect parameter. And that's good in the sense that it's weighted by positive stuff. Yeah, to real and that's good-ish. So, like, if you're happy with that, and then all the bad stuff comes from this comparing a unit units that get treated later to a control group of units that are already treated. Yeah. But if you know that, and you do, you know, bacon decomp, you could just subtract the bad stuff and yeah. be left with a positive thing. I nope. think I, I said that for a while, and I was like, that's probably good enough. Yeah. And I think I even like, originally I was Thumper, like, you get the number in the bacon decomp. I mean, I guess you got to figure yeah. out error though, but like, yeah, you, but otherwise you just like delete it, it, it but yeah. it's not a parameter that you were really going after. No. And I think that's another place where I didn't, I used to view this kind of statement as like, 
a little bit pedantic and like me asking for too much or too detailed or too, too uptight, you know, from econometricians, like, well, you need to say the parameter that you want and then specifically target that thing. Right. I didn't, I used to think like, okay, sure. But in reality, of course, we're not going to do that. We're going to run our regression and we hope it's kind of close and that let's all agree that's good enough. And that's something I think I've really changed about. Like now we, now I understand better, like how you can construct tools that do what you really want. So then you can do the thing that the econometricians want you to do. You can say, this is the parameter I want. You're not going to be happy when I say this, but like in a way, uh, those old IV arguments in the nineties, you know, like Heckman and others, would be, I remember interviewing Embens and he would say, he would say, you know, he was talking about the late theorem and uh, he would be like, we, we just kind of said, well, this is what you're getting with instrumental variables. You're getting the late. We're not saying it's good or bad. We're just saying, this is what it is. And I, and he said, uh, well, people, he told me people didn't really quite like it or some people didn't. And I was like, well, how come I, I don't understand? Like it's, you know, it's true. So why would you even have an opinion like that? And he said, he said, you know, well, that wasn't what people did. They, they like said, this is the parameter and this is how you get it. And in a way it's kind of like, you kind of have a bit of a, a late paper, right? Like, cause you, uh, yeah, you sort of are like, this is what you're getting. You're getting yeah. the, the variance weighted ATT plus the variance weighted parallel trends plus this dynamic treatment effect. And if that's what you're wanting, which no one in the right mind wants, but you know, like that, if that's what you're wanting, then that's what you get. Right. Yeah, totally. Actually, this is, I think, I think the of diff and diff a little bit. Definitely. Definitely. I think, and again, this experience, let me, let me look back at those nineties debates and understand them in a way that was much deeper than I used to, but here's where I think, I think the key distinction um, is in the sort of complexity of the design, you uh-huh. know, like how much stuff is varying. Right. So like the late theorem with a binary instrument is like, this is the causal, this is the, you know, this is the late for compliers. And there, there's like one set of compliers to the instrument. And yep. that's, that might not be what exactly what you want, but it, it sometimes is what you want. You know, yep. you can stick that into a marginal treatment effects, Roy model framework and understand like just what this means. Yep. It's not going to be this. There's like not weird waiting stuff. It's just, of specific population, but yeah, that's right. cool. You know, that's, that's kind of cool. It might, it's like, interesting. And I kind of love the way that the marginal treatment effects papers, like encompass all the parameters and like put late in the, in a broader context that I think is very cool too. Yeah, me too. But then plug that into like a walled IV theorem and you've got some weird waiting stuff again, you know, you're going to wait by like how far apart um, are any two values of Z and again, maybe that's not what you want. There's like variance waiting in there. So, and then in a staggered diff and diff, in a regular diff and diff, you don't have weird waiting stuff. Yeah. You just get an ATT because there's only one group, just like binary late. Yep. But with a staggered diff and diff, you got multiple treatment groups. And so now you've got like many little, what, what Pedro calls, and now I like routinely call building block parameters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then waiting matters and heterogeneity matters. And so, you know, if you're going to do super simple stuff, I think you, uh, don't have to worry as much about weird features of like that your estimator is giving you like use a regression you get some weird stuff if it's yeah. simple the regression is a is a very simple like averaging machine right but if it's complicated the regression is a kind of weird contorted averaging machine yeah. and it might not be the machine that you want so that's how i think about it now and like you look at some of the stuff i've been working on with pedro and brant calloway about continuous and different diff designs 
it's another one where at continuous design is just like a lot of variation yeah. now along, not on the timing margin, but now on like intensity. And you can put that stuff through the OLS averaging machine yeah. and see that it also gives you some weird weighting properties. So it's, it's something where now that I understand the tools yeah. that can are more tailored to what you want to know, I understand how they work. And I have come to feel that they actually, in the end, are kind of like simpler under the hood than a regression coefficient is. Totally, totally. I'm much more on board with the like, no, let's really like say what we want to know at the outset. Um, and that that has like other benefits, I think, for your analysis too. Um, totally. Well, you so, know, the, me and you've talked a lot about this. I've really enjoyed the regression adjustment stuff. I, I did not know really. I don't even, it's sort of like snuck up on me and I'm going to have time in on the the uh talk because he's helped he's talked a lot about the connections with the oaxa blinder stuff but like you know if, if you don't say up front i want the ate or i want the att then you don't even do the regression right you know under totally you're like yeah this whole saturating you're like i i heard somebody talk about saturating i didn't know what the heck that was and then yeah like then you do it in a simulation you're like well, wait a second, this one regression has two parameters. Which one do I want? And then yeah. you start to go, that's what's really been, I've been trying to kind of figure out how to tell people this in the seminar, the workshops. I'm like, you got to start with the parameter because if you don't, then you won't even know in a regression what to do. But then you're like, you know, the first step is always, and I'd be curious how you phrase it, but like the first step of this whole, like what parameter, you know, you say, well, what's your research question? And a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't know my research question is to estimate the effect of the minimum wage on employment. And you're like, well, there is no the effect. There's like, how many cities are in your data? And you're like a hundred. You're like, well, there's a hundred of them. Well, so which one do you want? You want it, you want it for all hundred or you want it for the ones that, that pass the law. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I you're mean, like, you can even go, you can even go he's really, that and say like, you, that. you, you don't even have to use averaging to summarize the underlying the summarize. treatment effect. You could say, yeah. I would like to know the median yeah. of, of heterogeneous treatment effects, or I would like to know the, the distribution of something. I'd like to know something about the distribution of like potential outcomes or something like that. So averaging already is like taking a stand on like, what is a parameter that you would want? Totally. I think with the controls thing, the way I, I say it after, after I like read Timon Swetchinsky's paper more closely and really like, I don't know what made me turn to it one day, but I was so glad that I, I dug into it. Um, and the like, um, the great writer, uh, Elder Heider and Godira's paper that it builds on. That's about Kitagawa uh, Oaxaca blinder decompositions. Yeah. Um, the way that I, I settled on saying it is like, I don't think that we even have a great definition of what it means to control for something in this context. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to, I, I think we should say adjust, but so suppose you want to, let's say adjust. Well, what do you want to do? Do you want to adjust the treatment group? so that they look like the control group. And then the distinction, the difference between them is like the treatment effect for untreated type of looking units. Or do you want to adjust the control group to look like the treatment group? And then the difference between them is the treatment effect for treated type of looking units. And so it's just kind of like, which one do you want to adjust to look like the other one? And this is funny because this is the kind of stuff that Donardo would say to me years ago. And I just didn't, I didn't get it. I was not prepared to understand you know, interacting your X's with D, taking difference, differences conditional on certain values of X. And you can look and he's got like a little note. I think his website's actually still up. He's got like a 2002 note maybe on reweighting. Um, that makes, you can make this point with reweighting really easily, like get a P score 
You can reweight the controls to look like the treatment, get an ATT. You can reweight the treatments to look like controls, get an ATU. You can reweight both of them to look like the average, get an ATE. Um, so he was making these points a long time ago, and it's um, it's just something where you know I I really miss John, and I wish that I could. Now that I understand things he said to me ten years ago, I wish I could go back and talk to him about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you know, um, it is funny how when you think about the progression of IV, even and it's like when you move away when you introduce heterogeneous treatment effects it's funny how I, I a lot of us i think i don't know if this is true but i learned about two-way fixed effects in the panel econometrics and then it was like the seamlessness with which you went into diff and diff i mean first of all you you could find different writers and they would say diff and diff and then you'd find certain writers and they would say um they would just say fixed effects you know and then and then it would be like they might not say diff and diff they might just say uh i'm using a fixed effects regression to estimate this policy parameter which is consistent under strict exogeneity and yeah. you're like you're like yeah and then you'd go and then you'd read the diff and diff people and this is a while ago, you know, so it's like back, I think when I was in grad school, maybe you'd, you'd, you'd like just happen to run into somebody and they would say diff and diff. And then they'd say parallel trends and you would go, uh, I guess that's the same thing. Yeah. Strict yeah, exogeneity yeah. and parallel trends is the same thing. And I was like, I, I, I remember all, cause like, you know, you, if you didn't come from a potential outcomes background, you just were like always doing things in terms of the air term. And so you were kind of like, uh, yeah, it's exogeneity. And, uh, since they're both consistent, they gotta mean the same thing. They can't yeah. not the same thing. And so they don't mean the same thing. And so when did you first start to notice that? Uh, I think it took a while actually, because I remember, I actually still, to, I, I wish I were better at proper panel econometrics, but the way I think about it is like, I, I think you're right. It's like focusing everything on the error term is tricky error mm -hmm. terms are really tricky this i think i think my i think the way that i started to square the circle here was that i dislike dis, um explanations of two-way fixed effects that are like well the unit dummies control for time invariant differences yeah right and the time dummies control for common shocks i'm like well yeah i see what you're saying but um but they're doing small. I, I don't like the control for language never speaks to me because I know that they're mod. I, because of I only know about the first law theorem. Well, I know that those things are modifying the other right hand side variables. So just show me that instead. Like uh, totally. show me like what you're taking out of the variation and what variation is left over. At the Michigan thing, that's where you, you like they they are like going around with the first level and it's like hammering stuff with it. I think so. I don't even I remember really, when I. I mean, we. I of course learned it, but like you know, I mean, I'm just like a regular person, so I was like, I, I never. I was like, just it's in the textbook, and then this is the answer. And but you're like, kind of get. You're like digging into the. You're digging into it. Yeah, it 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 made sense to me. I it's my it's my favorite theorem of all theorems for sure. I ah. really because it just like helped me take complicated things and turn them into other things. Like a good example is like, I'll see papers that like control for even without going too detailed about it, you know, suppose I, I forget, I was in a talk the other day and someone was like regressing an outcome on it was, maybe it was a continuous variable uh -huh. uh, and some other X's. And I just wanted them to just partial the X's out of the continuous variable and then show me how much variation is left over. 
Um, or I discussed a paper at EHA where I was like, look, you you have this continuous thing. Why don't you just partial the X's out of it and show me it's, which states wind up like high and low on this sort of like adjusted variable? Just you can do that. And the Frisch was like the key thing that that's going to tell you like really which state is at the top of the cloud and the bottom of the cloud, like in the end. Right. Um, and that that kind of stuff I thought was very helpful. Yeah, um, totally. Well, but so that, oh no, I know the error term thing. Uh, the thing that really helped me was like we think about the error term as other stuff. Yeah. But I think the thing I didn't appreciate is that treatment effect heterogeneity is in the error term if you totally. specify like one coefficient only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can get even sucked into like these like the the style of analysis of like random coefficient models where you say I would like the parameter that I want is the like average and I'm going to assume that the treatment effect heterogeneity is just like normally distributed around the average and so I've got some other noise in the error term and so everything's fine. I think the thing I didn't understand is like when you do the fixed effects and you think about what they do to the treatment variable, time-bearing treatment effects are like not orthogonal noise Z yeah. heterogeneity. They're like super correlated with the treatment variable noise and um, or treatment you know, super correlated with the treatment variable. And that's the way that I started to to square the like panel language with like diff and diffy type language. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. So uh uh there's probably still a lot of work to be done on the educating, I think, about that. Because, you know, I, I, I touch on it in the, my seminars, but like, um, I think that that's really, I think people, you know, Imbens and Rubin in their book, the, when they talk about exogeneity, they, they, you know, they'll talk about, they have this whole thing in the non, in the matching chapter where they're like, you know, here's exogeneity. And then the Imbens and them have a proof and they're like, and exogeneity assumes actually unconfoundedness, constant treatment effects, and the functional form is right. And you're like, mm. oh, well, crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't know that at all. Uh, and so, you know, it's the same kind of deal. Well, Hey, so let me, let me, let me talk about this thing. Um, cause I've kept you over and I, I That's wanted okay. to ask you a little bit. So you end up going to the fed and like, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they think of the, well, I don't know if a lot of people do, but there's some people, I think they think of the federal reserve and they're like, Oh, you know, that must mean Bacon's a macroeconomist now, but you know, or he's thinking about monetary policy, but you're in this interesting group at the fed that Abby Wozniak sort of was kind of seminal and helping start. Can you tell us what that group is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So the opportunity and inclusive growth Institute, we are like a research unit in the fed. I mean, here in Minneapolis, we're, adjacent to and you know tightly related with the broader research department um and you know the the origin i think was that neil kashkari came and was the president of the minneapolis fed and was making ob observations about things like uh black unemployment is persistently two times as high as white unemployment good yeah. times bad times the ratio is like two-ish almost all the time and you know i don't think he felt satisfied with the answers he was getting about why that might be true so he proposed um, a research institute um, within the Fed system to, to study that kind of thing, that kind of inequality, um, either in terms of distributions or across groups. Um, and then the feedback he got was like, yes, you can do it, but like put it in, in a regional bank, do it in Minneapolis. Um, and so then they got Abby to come head it. Um, and you know, she's someone whose work I've liked for a long time. I just really re like respect her. I'm super happy to get to work with her. Um, and then, you know, around 2019, like we were looking to, to move from Nashville, like we're, you know, as I may have inferred, like we're in our global max location at this point. Uh, um, 
and so that was really happy for for our family and um and i really like the fed system a lot i really really love working in it um uh you know like weirdly like the existence of the dual mandate um to like maintain stable prices and pursue maximum employment. Oh, like, like it's very helpful to have that written down. Like that's okay. why we're here. And it, it's pretty broad. You know, those are pretty broad things to say. They can plug into a lot. Um, they, you know, they can filter all the way down to like making sure you don't screw up your different diffs. Yep. But I love that that's there. So I, I value the fed for, for that reason too. Um, and so, yeah, I was really, and, and I was like very exciting to come be early on board with the Institute. Um, so First, yeah, first it was like uh, me and then a trade macro person from Notre Dame and Ilan Kondo, who's wonderful. Um, and then our next round of hiring was like Alex Albright, who it does fantastic, like reduced form kind of causal inference stuff in criminal justice. Malika Thomas does a lot of um, like personnel, labor type economics. Um, and then Amanda Michaud as a, a, a sort of macro policy mm. person. Mm. Oh, so it's growing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. It's really fun. Um, and so like, I get, I think too, like, you know, counterfactual where I'm still a professor, I spend a lot of time in office hours and I grade problem sets and people don't like their grade on things. And, uh, now I spend that time, like I write about research for the Institute. I write a lot of like public facing articles. Um, and that means I get to read papers I would otherwise not read. Um, I do, you know, the bank gets a certain amount of, um, we have a lot of trust, I think, locally in terms of doing evaluations of things. So I'm not involved in all of that, but I got to do an RCT for the city of Minneapolis um, about a guaranteed basic income program. So it's been, and and then of course the other part of it is that I get to interface with this entire half of the economics profession, like structural research, macro, that I otherwise was not going to. Yeah. I, I had no, there was no incentive or reason for me to like go that direction, yeah. go to those talks before. And I've learned a ton from them. They, they have like a different sensibility about things sometimes, but it's really, it's really um, informative and, and I think broadening like my understanding of like what economics can do and, and how to use it and how to motivate things and, and uh, exist in the profession. Yeah. Sandy Black said that too to me once. She said, you know, when she served on the, the CEA, she was like learning the macro labor she would have never learned or maybe she said something like that you know which is like there's just a whole bunch of econ that you know we're so you know we're more siloed than we've ever been and we're and we're less siloed now than we'll be in 100 years you know so it's like um so you end up I, this is the last topic i want to talk about you've you've moved into homelessness and um talking you study homelessness now is that is that right you've got this new project on homelessness well i mean it's not yet filtered into like my Research, research. Although I have ideas about it, um, it came from uh, some of the bank writing. So um, we have a, a twice yearly magazine called For All, um, which anybody can sign up for and get delivered to their home um, for oh. free. It's beautiful. Um, it's like it, we get to produce it with all sorts of people across the bank. Like we have excellent public affairs folks who make sure that it just looks gorgeous and like comes across really nicely. Oh. We have writers that contribute to it. I mean, it's, it's awesome. I really like reading it. So I took the, I took on the sort of lead article for our current issue. Um, Cause I was noticing that we had a lot of people at our conferences or visiting us who were doing something homelessness related. Um, so like Elior Cohen is an, uh, an economist at the Kansas city fed who has like a sort of judge IV type, design looking at um the effect of like getting immediate housing assistance versus kind of having to wait on 
other outcomes, sub subsequent kind of homelessness related public service use outcomes. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's good. Getting housing is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about um, this guy, Mike Cassidy at Rutgers has stuff about like homeless children and um, what happens to their schooling outcomes if they're placed near or far like their existing school. Because sometimes the placements can be far flung. Like in New York City, you might be in a different borough. Right. Um, and that's bad. Like being and staying in your area. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so these are like kids and homeless families who are getting placed in housing, and if the housing is far away, it's not not as good for for children's no, performance no in school. You know, distance matters from lots of stuff. Yeah, I think you got to think of these kids as like now you have to get if you want to go to your school, you got to get on this bus and go really far, or your or your schooling might be disrupted. Um, or Isa Imra Hoglu uh, has like a structural model about um, how to think about homelessness um, because it's a really heterogeneous type population. There's there's a lot of cyclers yeah. and then there's people who slide into this like long-term chronic homelessness and, and for econ reasons. And then I think also like sort of practical psychosocial uh, yeah. drug treatment, like all sorts of other reasons, those two populations need different things or will react differently to different types of interventions. Yeah. So it was a natural thing to write about because the Institute was like kind of just experiencing more homelessness research coming in. Um, and so I got the chance to write this magazine article, which as a sidebar was super fun because you don't have to write in academic article style. You can do like, you can do writing things. You can, you can say, I want to write it this way because it would be evocative and then you can do it. It's very fun. Um, so it got me thinking about that, but you know, homelessness was always like adjacent to stuff I cared about anyway. So I actually yeah. felt really glad to get to think about it because it filled in a, in a gap for me, you know, like you and I have talked about deinstitutionalization. Yeah. That's related to homelessness. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the issues are medical and that's related to Medicaid. Um, mm -hmm. There's a ton, you know, there's a ton. Um, it's really related to everything. And it, and I, I came away, I think, convinced that it affects everybody yeah. to different extents, of course, but, but we're all kind of tied up in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure it's very meaningful to work on yeah. that. I mean, that's, it's just gotta, even when you just dis do something descriptive, it just feels yeah. like this really matters what I'm doing. Yeah. So I want to end with this. I, I want you to imagine that you could go back in time or maybe he comes to you and it's that, it's that young bacon that's just pissed off about econ and economists. And, you know, he hasn't yet had his buddies talk to him. You know, what do you think if he, you know, you're, you're at a coffee shop and he walks in and he doesn't know it's you. You know, so y'all are just kind of striking right. up a conversation and he hears you or you hear him just being agitated. Yeah. What, how, how would you talk That's to him? And what, how would you talk to him? And, you know, what do you what do you think you tell him now that you, you know, without uh, your identity? I don't know. That's a really good question. I think about this a lot. Like, could I even make my former self understand things that I now understand, not even in terms of academia, just like wisdom or like things that are true about my life now that I could have never imparted. But I think probably that, that like 18 year old probably would have needed to be <laughs> handled with a little bit of care. Cause I think there was probably like a lot of like egotism there. You know, I think I was probably pretty wrapped up in like feeling like I was, uh, I think I just wanted to be making those points and feel smart about it. So I, I think, um, I think I would, uh, I think is related to the communication styles. I don't think that just like, I don't think having things asserted to me at that time would have been super convincing. I think I would have needed to have things shown to me. Like mm -hmm. here's what you can do if you are able to think this way. Yeah. But you egomaniacal 18 year old, 
of course you can do whatever you want, <laughs> but like, I would like to, you know, I'm going to invite you to think, think like this. I think that's the, that's probably the style that I, I would have wanted. I bet you would just be super friendly, Tim, and <laughs> super kind and super loving. Cause you're, you're, I will say I have, I've enjoyed our uh, Slack channel, mm-hmm. which I think probably the best description of it is we're just kind of a playing some D and D and not getting a lot of work done always <laughs> learning a lot, you know, yeah, you have you a wizard, learn a ton from you guys have a wizard channel. Yeah. yeah totally. Started that wizard or I started that wizard. wizard channel. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, so, hold ahead. on. I actually have a quote because I'm, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller to the podcast. And I have a quote I, for you actually oh, from, yeah? um, from a book that we've talked about, but that I'm reading right now is recommended by a friend called microbe hunters by this guy, Paul DeCroif. And it's this weird book from 1926 that's like going through the background of all these like early germ, the, basically the development of germ theory. Yeah, it's downstairs. It, you told me about it and I ordered it. Okay. It's so ahead. fun. Um, so at the end of the book, this made me think of you a lot and like the way that you approach this podcast. So he's talking at the end, he gets all the way to the development of early antibiotics um, or mm, maybe it's written in 1926. So maybe he's not even there yet. Um, but he says this, he says, this plain history would not be complete if I were not to make a confession. And that is this, that I love these microbe hunters <laughs> from old Antony Leuvenhoek to Paul Ehrlich, not especially for the discoveries they've made, nor for the boons that they've brought to mankind. No, I love them for the men they are. And I say they are for in my memory, every man Jack of them lives and will survive until this brain must stop remembering. Mm. And I read that paragraph and I thought about the way that you think about the history of economics and the people yeah. involved in it. I love, that's a great quote that, uh, that is totally encapsulate how I feel. Uh, I love you and I love, I love our tribe and you know, th- but to love our tribe doesn't, I just love the people, you know, I love, I love the stories and I love the, the, the authenticity of caring about people and going about it in a weird way. And you know, it's, that's great. That's a great quote. I'll have to, you have to send that to me. Yeah. Well, it's been so nice, you know, uh, I've just so thoroughly enjoyed, um, our conversation. And of course, you know, I, uh, love you very dearly yeah. and, um, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks. Well, you too, Scott. I really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. All right. You gotta see us soon.